Hey guys, welcome to the Water to Water podcast with Chrislyn and Kevin James. In this episode, we will answer the question, am I saved? The reason why we're looking at this question is because this is something that often is on the mind of a professing Christian. Is my faith saving faith? Or is it a faith that is when Jesus gives a parable when he talks about it in the New Testament? He says, a lot of people will come to the Lord in the final days and say, we've done this in your name, we've done that in your name, only for Jesus to turn back and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you have no part with me. And so this is something that's scary. This is something that uh, terrifies a lot of people. And so we often find ourselves doubting our faith, uh, doubting our salvation. And we hope in this episode to try and find some solutions, some spiritual solutions to answer this question. Yeah, so this can be a twofold thing. So we can begin to doubt our salvation when our eyes are turned away from God and our eyes are focused on ourselves. And we stop thinking of God as our saviour and we think that we are our own saviour. And when that happens and when we mess up, because we're humans and we will mess up, we'll start to think, oh no, what's happened? Have I lost my salvation? What do I do? And, you know, that can be one reason why these doubts arise in our minds. And the second reason could just be the environment that you're around and you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've kind of seen people get saved over and over again. So this whole thing loses its novelty. You know, people confessing that they believe in Jesus and getting baptized. It's almost become like a rite of passage that you just have to go through when you reach a certain age. And you might have done it like that when you were younger. You might have just, you know, gone with the motions. And now you're sitting here thinking, am I really a Christian? Or, you know, did I just do what was expected of me? So it's really a twofold thing. Yeah, and just to build up on the point that you made about growing up in a church and seeing lots of things and getting used to it. A lot of us who have grown in the church would have biblical principles in the way we live. For example, Christian morals like not swearing, perhaps not uh, stealing or thieving or committing adultery uh, suddenly when you grow up. So there are those things which we follow and we automatically think because we are following these things, we are saved rather than actually putting our faith and trust in Christ for his all-complete sacrifice and we are saved because of that. Yeah, you know, sometimes I wish I was a brand new Christian. I don't know about you. And I wish that I didn't grow up in the church and that one day I had this encounter with God that changed my life because then I'd know for sure that I've been transformed. For example, the transformation that Paul had on the road to Damascus and how everything switched for him rather than having been raised in the church. So the gradient you know, um, it's not as steep for me personally, having grown up in the church, because you may already have the false impression, like you said earlier, that you are already saved. For example, I'll tell you a specific thing. Even in Sunday school, you might be told things like you're a child of God, but really speaking, you're not a child of God until you are saved. And that's the false impression that a lot of us have, even from childhood. So it's hard to see, like, how can a child of God why would they need to be saved? Right, because you're telling the child that they are a child of God, even before they've put their faith and trust in God. And because they're a child of God, they have to do X, Y, and Z. And they do X, Y, and Z thinking that they're children of God, when actually 
they haven't been saved. Yep. They haven't put their faith and trust in God. So it's a very confusing thing. And like you said, there isn't a steep gradient like Paul's transformation. Having said all this, it's almost impossible to change that in the church, I don't think, unless we tell the kids from the beginning, you are not children of God. You are, you know, you need Jesus. I mean, we could do that, but I don't think many parents would be happy with us going through that route. And they would rather us go with the lovey-dovey route of saying, yeah, we're all children of God. This is what we need to do. And then hopefully they put their trust and faith in Christ too. Don't get us wrong. We're not blaming the church for the misconceptions that people have. In fact, sometimes the church actually provides really good tools for people, uh, especially in Sunday school and things. You know, for example, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm currently teaching about the whole process of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. So these are really useful tools. But I think these misconceptions are just there. Yeah. And uh, the problem is, how do these misconceptions actually uh, manifest itself? What do we see on a daily basis or a weekly basis or even sometimes in an annual basis happen because of these misconceptions i can give you one straight off the bat and that's for annual youth conferences or annual family conferences where on the third day the music slows down the light reduce and then the preacher in the front the pastor in the front says those of you who have put their faith in jesus christ uh, come forward so let's say you're going for your first youth conference you see lots of young people going forward and you see them putting their faith and trust in God. And then a year later, you come back to, this youth, to the same youth conference. And you see that the pastor calls up again, people to come forward. And lo and behold, it's the same people going forward again. Yeah, many and, of the same people. And many of the same people. Not all of them, yeah. of course. Many of the same people. And then the year after that, many of the same people. And the year after that, many of the same people. So what what you have is confusing now. Because... What happened in the first time when they went and put their faith and trust in God? What happened in the second time and the third time? Why are people coming back and, quote unquote, putting their faith and trust in God again and again? And this is what happens as a result of not realizing whether you are saved or not. And so what happens is these young people, I say young people, but these people who've put their faith and trust in God, let's say, on the, in the first conference... They're on an emotional high. They're on a spiritual high. They've made decisions. They want to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Great. Fantastic. They go back to their normal school life or work life, wherever it is. They've hold on to the decision for a week, two weeks. And after that, the struggles of this world, the temptations of this world come knocking down. And eventually they fall. They uh, commit the sins that they've promised that they wouldn't commit. They've done things or said things that they promised that they wouldn't do because they've decided to follow Jesus and they weren't going to turn back. So what's happening then is these people who have fallen to sin come back and go to the conference. And again, the first day is finished, the second day is finished. And on the third day of the conference, when they have this opportunity to put their faith and trust in God, they go to the front to do it all over again. And the question we have to ask ourselves, folks, is what was the point of the cross? Was the point of the cross to just be like washing machine Christianity? What do I mean by that? You sinned, and because of the sin that you have in your life, or you've accumulated in a year, you've got to go and get it washed by the blood of Jesus at the third day of the conference. And that's similar to wearing clothes, and getting dirty, and you having to wash it in a washing machine at the end of the week. So, is that what Jesus' blood is? 
Is it simply washing machine Christianity? We just want to clarify, though, that the moment that you truly put your faith in Jesus and are truly saved, at that point, you are justified. So you have the right standing with God from that Mm. point onwards. And that's not something that we need to keep, you know, redoing over and over again. However, we do need God's help to remain faithful to him. And that is where sanctification comes in. And that is where the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin constantly and renews us and gives us strength to overcome these temptations. We're not going to go into it in too much detail. We still need God. We still need the blood of Jesus. We still need Jesus to continue helping us because he is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith too. So he's the one who helps us get there. Yeah, and so you going forward every single conference for putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ doesn't make sense. Because if you had done it once and it was true, you won't have to do it again. Okay, so you've talked about true faith. Now, what does that mean? And how do you know that you've got it? Right. The first thing we need to realize with salvation is, or true faith is, is that we have nothing to do with it. We have absolutely nothing to do with it. We are simply the recipient of salvation. We receive it freely. The imagery I'd like to bring to our listeners' minds is the imagery of Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus made no choice to come alive. Similarly, when we are sinners, whilst we were still dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. Christ came to save us. While we were still enemies with God, Christ died to save us. Similar to the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He had no life in him. At no point did Lazarus say, I'm going to get up. Jesus had to come. Jesus had to make the first move and say, arise, Lazarus. Similarly to us, in our spiritual life, we were dead in our trespasses. But Jesus comes and says, arise, my child. And just for the benefit of you guys, this is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 and uh, 4 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. You know, I've heard a lot of people say, and there was also a point in my life where I thought, you know, there was one day where I just realized that I was a sinner. And I decided to repent. And I decided to go to God. But the fact that I realized that I was a sinner is not me from myself. It was the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin. That's why I can't take credit for that realization. I can't take credit for that repentance. I can't take credit for turning to God. It wasn't really me turning to God. It was God turning my heart towards him. Amen. And that's why in Ephesians, that same chapter, it says, even the faith that we have is a gift from God so that no one may boast. So even our faith that we have in Jesus is a gift from Jesus. Yeah, because in our Pentecostal circles, I've heard a lot of boasting about, you know, people's own faiths. They're and like their own righteousness, just like the Pharisees. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, you know, because of my faith, X, Y, Z happened. But it's clear from scripture that, like you said, faith is a gift from God. Yeah. It's nothing that we can take credit for. Yeah. And the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. That's the only thing we bring. All right. So our heart's been changed, like you've said. It's been pointed towards God. Our faith is in God. What happens next? Yeah, so Paul says that once you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then the next step is to confess with your mouth. 
confession could be you know you stand up in church and then you declare that god has transformed your heart and that you want to live for him and you ask the church for prayers and you declare with your mouth that jesus is now your lord and your savior and sometimes this can lead to a lot of confusion and this is where you know what i was talking about earlier this rite of passage situation comes into play (laughs) where when kids get to about age 12 they're kind of expected to make this confession now whether they're hearts are changed or not people don't really know but when kids stand up and do make this confession everyone's really happy and nobody bothers to really sit down and think right is this real or is it just a thing that they're saying because they are expected to and peer pressure and peer pressure they see their friends doing it and then you know you know my mom did have a word with me once being like listen all people your age are sort of making these decisions What about you? When are you going to do it? Mm. And I'm sure there's a lot of kids who are facing the same thing. And that is just really wrong. It's not an age thing. You don't get to a certain age and suddenly, you know, God's like, right, this person's 12. I'm going to transform their hearts. And then they're going to declare with their mouths. It doesn't work like that. And often you get these kids very early on making these confessions and declarations. And like we discussed earlier, they go on to live these lives that are so confusing for them. They're like, am I here or am I not here? What's going on? And they feel so much guilt because they think they're a Christian, but somehow they're doing, they just can't be a Christian. They can't live like a Christian. Well, the truth is because they're not Christian yet. Indeed, they haven't put their faith and trust in God. They've just made the public declaration, but actually it meant nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I have a funny story that goes with this. Well, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then in the UAE when this happened. A friend of mine and I were playing uh, football, minding our own business, not really causing issues. And uh, suddenly two Arab boys approached us and said to us, well, they're speaking in Arabic, which we knew very little of. And they were pointing to my friend's chest. And my friend was wearing a golden cross to signify that he's Christian. It was clear to see that these Arab boys wanted him to remove that cross immediately. I told my friend, time to get rid of it. Just just get rid of it. And he was like, no, there's no way I'm going to do it. I said, Joel, these boys are going to beat us up into a pulp if you don't do it. And he was like, I don't care. He was adamant not to remove it. And I thought to myself, well, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. I'm going to get beaten up by two Arab boys and my life is over. And just as they were pushing and shoving and we were pushing and shoving back, obviously, Suddenly, as if an angel appeared, an older Arab boy, probably at university then, came and diffused the situation, stopped the situation, and basically told the Arab boys to go away in Arabic uh, and stop being annoying, and we both legged it home. And so, the reason why I said that story is, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ and making a public declaration is a huge thing. It isn't a huge thing in the West, as much because persecutions against Christians is not physical as it is in ancient times or in different parts of the world. So it's different to confess with our lips right now when things are comfortable and when push comes to shove, come at the hour, come at the man. The situation that my friend and I were in was a perfect situation for me to have stood for God, but I didn't. I got scared. We were, we were both around 10. He was, in, in fact, the more embarrassing thing is he was younger than me. So there was, <laughs> there was both of us big shots, you know, taking part in choir, etc. And me saying, you know what, this is where I, this is where I tap out, lads. 
uh, good luck uh, with getting beaten up. But I didn't. And on a more serious note, I always have this picture in my head of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And it's that image in my head, which I saw a few years ago of the members of an Egyptian church who were kneeling down in the beach in Egypt. And you had the members of ISIS standing over them about to slit their throats because these members from the Egyptian church refused to forsake Jesus. And that is what it means to have a transformed heart. That is what it means to have confessed and repented and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. It is that transformation of heart that needs to happen. And sometimes people confuse like this transformation in your heart with feelings. And we're not talking about feelings. Sometimes when God transforms your heart, it will be followed with a physical thing as well. For example, you might cry because you start to realize just how much of a sinner you are and how good God is. And that might make you cry. Or, you know, in some cases, there might be so many different things. For example, when people in the Bible have seen the glory of God, they've fallen down flat as if they were dead or or they have completely just bowed down. So these things can happen, but that's not definitely a confirmation of a transformation happening in your heart. Like you said earlier, it could just be, you know, the dim lights, uh, could just be the slow music. You were having a bad day and then suddenly there's a song about how God loves you and you're just like, thank God, at least someone loves me. (laughs) And you just start crying. and you're Emotional high. Yeah, it's an emotional high or emotional low, whatever you want to call it. That doesn't necessarily mean something's happening in your heart. So I just wanted to put that out there because I used to feel like unless I had a good cry at church... I didn't have a good worship session. (laughs) On the days when I came out crying, you know, my nose all red. That's when I was like, oh, today I had a really good worship session. I really connected with God there. But that's not necessarily true. So we've put our faith in Christ. We've confessed our sins. We've repented. How would someone who's a Christian check to see if they are saved or if they are on the right track? Because Peter says to examine are standing with God, right? So in his letter. So what would you say to that? So one of the main things is that you would hate your sin. That's one of the main signs. Whatever you once loved doing, whatever sinful desires you once had, and you actively pursued it, and you had no problem doing it, you will have a repulsion towards it. That doesn't mean that you'll all of a sudden become squeaky clean and you'll never do any sin again. It just means that you'll have this war within you. Like Paul says, spirit is against the flesh. The flesh is against the spirit. Paul says, I do the things that I hate doing and the good things that I want to do, I'm not doing. And he's just struggling in his heart about this. And he's he calls himself a wretched man in a moment of self-pity. And then all of a sudden he remembers, thank God that he has redeemed me. I'm just yeah. paraphrasing here. Yeah, this is towards the end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8 when he goes on to say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who walk in the Spirit. So there is that split within us. Even if the sin is there, sometimes we do it and we want to do it as well, right? But we also have the conviction in our heart saying, don't do it, don't do it. You know, the other day it was Amazon Prime Day, right? And I really wanted to buy some stuff. It would have been for the sake of it. But there was a thing in my head, my conscience saying, don't be stupid, don't do it. Now, I'm not saying that was sinful to do that and it was the Holy Spirit telling me to not do that. No, it wasn't. But that's how similar it would be when you're pursuing the sin that you should be hating. And if that's the case and there is a conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you will know that the Holy Spirit is working inside you. What you don't want 
is silence. Yeah. And once you do inevitably commit some sins, the next step is to run to the father and not just sit there wallowing in your guilt and then being like, I messed up already. What can I do? I'm just going to carry on. It's kind of like when I go on a diet and then I eat a donut and I'm like, you know what? I've already had one. How about having another two? (laughs) So that is not the sign of a true Christian. So when you've committed sin, running to the father and repenting and hating your sin and truly confessing that you hate that sin and asking God to desperately change your heart, that is the sign of a true Christian. Yeah, and I just would like to quote Charles Spurgeon here. My heart, I charge you to hate sin. My eyes do not look on it. My ears do not listen to its siren charm. My feet do not run in its paths. My hands refuse to handle it. My soul loathe loathe that which murdered Christ and thrust a spear through the tenderest heart that has ever beat. This is an amazing way that only Charles Spurgeon could put it. So we need to have a hatred towards sin. That's the first thing. Right, Christian, what's the next? So the next thing, once you're saved, is that there'll be evidence of your salvation. And there are two ways in which the evidence of your salvation will be displayed. One is by the fruit of the Spirit, which is spoken about in Galatians chapter 5. And I'll read out a few verses here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, Paul is calling this whole thing the fruit of the Spirit. If we think about a fruit, A tree doesn't have to work hard to squeeze out its fruit, right? If the tree is in fertile soil and is getting the nutrients, then it will produce fruit and it will produce good fruit. Similarly, if our heart has been transformed, if our heart has been fertilized by the Holy Spirit and we have the right nutrients from God, then we will also bear good fruit. So these attributes are not something that come from ourselves because sometimes people refer to this as the fruits of the Spirit. But notice how it's just fruit it's several attributes of the same fruit and i'm not talking about you know for example you've just got like a personality for example you're quite a chilled person and before you're a christian you're a chilled person after you're a christian you're a chilled person and a lot of the times people mistake this for being a fruit of the spirit but that's just your personality the fruit of the spirit is talking about a person has been completely transformed in every area that I mentioned earlier. So in goodness, in forbearance, in kindness, they grow in every area like this because of fruit. You know, if you think about it, it has to grow evenly. It's not just one part of the fruit growing. That would be abnormal. That would be a deformed fruit. So it grows evenly and equally because it's not you that's cultivating this growth. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing this work in you. Yeah, and moving on from this... If you think about the change that is happening inside the person, it's happening from the inside outwardly. A lot of the changes that we see in, you know, programs that say become a better you, do a this, do a that. What's happening is they're trying to change your behavior from outside and then they're hoping that eventually there'll be a change on the inside. But the way Christianity works, the way the Holy Spirit works is that your inside changes first And then what you see is a change in the outside. And similarly to what you've just said, of course, with the fruit coming out. And for reference, this is what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 6 verses 45. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, 
his mouth speaks. And the final thing that we're going to look at today is works and how that can act as evidence of our faith. Now, we've got to be very careful about what we mean when we say work, because there are two major views on what works are according to the church. There's the Protestant view where it's works are a result of us being saved, whilst in the Catholic view, the work accompanies your faith to save you. Of course, we hold on to the Protestant view because that's the biblical one, we would argue. And uh, Christian's going to expand on that now. So by works, we mean good works. It might look like charity, helping people who are homeless, helping the widows, etc. Now let's read a passage from James chapter 2. and Let's read from verse 14. It says, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you said to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So James is basically saying here that if we claim to have true faith, but we don't have the good works that result from that true faith, then actually our faith is dead. We're just lying or we're just deluded and convincing ourselves that we have the faith, but we don't because we can't claim to be a Christian, but have no care about people who are suffering. And if we can just pass the homeless person without a second thought, then James is basically saying that that is unchristian and that our faith is not real. Yeah, and we need to, again, emphasize the fact that we're not saying these works are the thing that save you. It is your faith alone that saves you. These works are just acting as evidence of your faith. I'll give you another example. I'm an Arsenal fan. And let's say I'm obsessed with Arsenal. I'm not. Well, I don't think I am. But let's say I'm obsessed with Arsenal every waking moment for me is filled with thoughts about Arsenal and watching Arsenal and uh, going around and telling people about why Arsenal is so great and why everyone else should support Arsenal. But this isn't what I'm saying. However, when somebody sees me walking around, I'm wearing a Chelsea kit. When everyone sees me go to a football match, all the matches I'm going to are Chelsea games at the bridge. And anytime I'm seeing spending money buying tickets or buying kit, like I already mentioned. It's all Chelsea kit. Although I'm claiming that I'm a worshipper of Arsenal, all the evidence of my actions are testifying otherwise. This is what it means to be a Christian and not actually have evidence or works. When you say something with your mouth and your actions are something else completely different. So the work here is evidence for your salvation. It is not essential for your salvation. And so if we continue reading that chapter, it goes into more detail. Uh, So verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Question mark. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The next sentence is vital here. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So Abraham's righteousness was credited to him the moment he believed. But along with that, along with that faith, 
the evidence that he believed was the fact that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, even though eventually he didn't, right? Because God stopped him. So his faith in God created him his righteousness. He was saved because of that. But the evidence of that was his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And to build up on this, if you looked at the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives this parable where both the Pharisee and the tax collector come to the temple and the Pharisee prays to God saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he's pointing at the tax collector there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes for all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the difference there was the tax collector was asking God, please have mercy on me. I'm not worthy of you. There is nothing that I can do to make me worthy of you. However, the Pharisee was looking at his own works to try and save him. That is the subtle nuance. That's the subtle difference between believing that your work saves you, that you giving your tithe, that you giving your funds, that you giving your time to church is saving you, or if it is actually your undiluted, perfecting faith. All of the other things I've mentioned just now are important, but they do not save you. It is your faith alone that saves. So we just want to summarize by saying that if you were one of these people who were kind of confused about your salvation, not sure whether you're a true Christian or not. Don't worry, we were also in the same boat and we have been several times. And we hope that through this conversation, we've provided you with some tools which you can use to examine your heart and test and see whether what you thought was true faith is actually true or whether it's just something that you've just gone through the process and you've convinced yourself and others of. Now, if you are in that boat where you've suddenly realized after testing yourself, actually, I don't think my faith is real, then hope is not lost for you. Again, like I say, we were in the same boat. And what we need to do at that point is plead with God to transform our hearts truly. Because he is, and I'm going to say this again, he's the author of our faith. So he's the one who begins our faith. He's the one who continues our faith and brings us to that finish line. So he's doing all the work and we just need to put our trust in him. And we need to plead with him that he will help us to see that and that he will transform our hearts. But if you were a person who tested yourself and you're like, you know what, my faith is actually true. Thank God for that. Praise God. We are not called to be complacent if we are in that position. Because in Philippians, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to always be on the fence like, oh, no, I think I'm about to lose my salvation. We've established that that doesn't happen. But what we need to do is constantly examine our hearts and see if there's sin in us and plead with God to take that out of us and constantly be asking God to help us. Because like I said, without his help, we will not get to the finish line. All right, folks, we hope you've enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to share, subscribe and follow us. And of course, we hope you've been watered to water. <laughs>